You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Verix, and uh, today is Saturday, December 22nd, 2018. New Year's almost here. Christmas is almost here. All right, so let's get right into the show. So today I kind of wanted to get into a few different topics and a few different things surrounding psychology, in particular um, Jungian psychology, uh, which is the psychology of uh, developed by Swiss psychiatrist and influential thinker uh, Carl Gustav Jung. And, you know, he was born in 1875 and died around 19, I think, uh, June of 1961. So, you know, he lived throughout pretty uh, interesting times, uh, specifically, uh, you know, the World War uh, One, Two, and uh, the Cold War, or pretty much the beginning of the Cold War. So uh, he was also the founder of analytical psychology as well. So Jungian psychology is considered, you know, the first modern uh, psychiatrists to view the human psyche as, you know, by nature religious and to make the focus on the exploration of, of this exploration. So when I say religious, I also mean mythical, you know, having some type of mythic response to uh, a connection to these mythic, these myths. So, uh, you know, his uh, friend and confidant Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud was also a very famous and influential thinker and still is. And uh, Freud and his belief on religion kind of uh, was at odds with uh, Jung's. I mean, Freud believed that religion was an expression of underlying psychological neurosis and distress. And in various points in his writings, he re- he suggested that even religion was an attempt to control the uh, Oedipus complex, which was a uh, you know infantile delusion, an attempt to control the outside world. So, uh, but, you know, for Jung, it was more so of something a little deeper, you know, on this issue, the primacy of religion, you know, in its considerations of the psyche and others, you know, Jung, you know, had pretty much a huge disagreement with Freud and they actually had a falling out ultimately because of it. Uh, so to this day, there's, you know, a big distinction between Freudians and Jungians on their theoretical disagreements at particularly going into uh, the ideas of religion and its foundations within our psyche and just the ideas of myth itself. So, for instance, Freud uh, and Jung had different ideas about dreams, but, you know, he's not the first to analyze dreams, but Jung was best known, uh, you know, in research, in doing the field of uh, dream analysis and civilization, you know, finding symbols within dreams. So if you tend to, you know, try to understand your dreams and look at dreams and you go online and try to find stuff, like, you know, the odds are very likely that you're going to be reading something that is influenced by Freud, or, I mean, excuse me, by Jung, and is probably uh, maybe even written by Jung. So, you know, Jung was fully involved with 
you know, being a clinician himself, but, you know, his life's work was also exploring many different things, including Eastern and Western philosophy, astrology, alchemy, sociology, and literature, particularly from the psychological, how it affects people psychologically, you know, um, but in regard, it was, you know, extremely productive for him because it allowed him to at least put a a map to the human psyche through symbols and processes of dreams and other entries to the unconscious. So Jung considered the process of individuation necessary for a person to become whole. So this is a process, a you know, psychological process of integrating the opposite, including the conscious with the unconscious while still maintaining, you know, their own autonomy. So individuation was a central concept to analytical psychology. Um, so Jung's model for the psyche was at the top, the ego, then the consciousness, then the personal unconsciousness, then the collective unconsciousness. And, uh, the part of the, you know, that obviously the part of the unconscious is that cannot be, you know, con- you know, contacted or, uh, you know, communed with in a way. So there's two types of unconscious, like I mentioned, the personal and collective unconscious. Um, the personal unconscious is the hidden collective or, uh, collection of forgotten memories, instincts, desires, perceptions, and emotions that we are unaware of as people. You know, it, so it appears in dreams and in knowledge of its uh, of itself, and you know, it it's also appears in the way people treat each other, whether it's by you know treating people nicely or treating people with bigotry. So, um, th- but the thing is, the thing to understand that is the self is creating this, you know, that's creating the potential for all this stuff. Um, the collective unconscious, on the other hand, consists of characteristics and archetypes that many people have in common inherited at birth, you know, for instance, fear, happiness, cowardice, hero a complex, a victim complex, whatever, right? And again, uh, something to point out and I should mention is that, you know, Jungian psychology Freudian stuff. A lot of this stuff isn't, you know, empirical in the sense that a lot of it cannot be quantified through data and stuff like this. But I do think there are some interesting things that Jung talks about that I really want to go into. And coming on to it right now is pretty much his idea of the personality and how that kind of interplays within ourselves. So, you know, the personal, like I said, the personal unconscious is all the stuff that simply isn't, you know, conscious, right? Um, stuff requires some digging. You know, it requires us to be – for the stuff to be recalled and you know, brought to the forefront. Um, so the archetypes, like I mentioned, are innate, universal, psychic dispositions that form the foundation from which the basic symbols of representation of the unconscious experience emerges. So when you dream and you dream of, you know, you being a hero and fighting off, you know, uh, a monster or whatever, that's that's the archetypal dream because – the idea of a hero fighting some type of monster, usually some type of beast or, you know, a werewolf or a dragon, whatever, right? So archetypes are functions which give rise to specific motifs uh, or motifs as, you know, common in all mythology as in the individual's life. They're often discussed in terms of personifications which appear in dreams, but they can also be seen in themes of stories, mythology, or even lived out. Uh, they're very potent as a pattern of action and understanding. So, like I said, some of them. So, you know, if you look on the on the ego side, you know, there's a hero, there's a magician, there's a creator. Closer to the freedom side, there's the in terms of you know, if you're going to have an access, a four you know quadrant access, the top is freedom, the bottom is order, the right is social, and the left is ego. The hero, the magician, the creator would be on the ego spectrum. For freedom, it would be the explorer, you know, the outlaw, the jester, you know, the joker in a, in a way. 
And for social, it's the lover, the caregiver, the everyman. And then for, you know, order, it's the sage, you know, um, the ruler, the innocent, stuff like that. So this is kind of like archetypes and, you know, kind of in a sense, you know, super memes. And that's kind of what archetypes are. So like I mentioned, the creator is, you know, the motivation for it, you know, having this archetype, which would mean a pattern of action in your own life. So let's say the creator would represent stability and control, right? So if it can be imagined, it can be created. That's kind of what the whole idea of the of the creator archetype is. And the whole desire of it, the core desire of that archetype is create something of endearing value. Um, the caregiver, also the motivation for it is stability and control, uh, like the creator. Um, so it's to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a very common motif and mo- uh, motto that you can be seen throughout many different religions, including Christianity. And the core desire is to protect people from harm. The ruler is, again, stability and control. Um, but, you know, the, the motto or the, you know, the motive that kind of goes with this is, uh, you know, power isn't everything. It is the only thing. So as you can see, the whole idea, the core desire of this, you know, archetype is just complete, absolute control. Um, so we move on to different types of uh, archetypes. So I mentioned the jester, right? The, the joker. Um, so the, the motivation of this is belonging and enjoyment. If, it, you know, if I can, uh, it's basically to live in the moment with full enjoy, with full enjoyment, full happiness throughout the experience. Um, so the regular person, right? The every, the every man, the every lady. So this is just the connection. The core desire is a connection with the other. Um, the idea, so some motto, all people are created equal, right? Um, the lover is another type of, uh, archetype that can be you know connected to belonging and enjoyment so attaining the core desire of this is attaining intimacy and experience through uh sexual pleasure so that would be the archetype of the lover the hero right is to prove one's worth through courageous and difficult action the outlaw and that takes you know the, the motivation of risk and mastery the outlaw as well revenge and res- revolution that's kind of where they come from in terms of their desires the magician, again, it feeds the motivation of risk and mastery, but it's knowledge of the fundamental laws of how the world and the universe works. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting uh, point of view. And then to, to the last motivations that we want to speak about in terms of connecting them to archetypes would be the last three is the, uh, the innocent, the explorer, and the sage. So the sage is um, is dependent on the motivation of independence and fulfillment, right? And it's the sage's whole core desire is the discovery of truth, kind of like what I've been uh, trying to do on this show. So I kind of live in, you know, that archetype is a pattern of action, like I mentioned. So the sage is an archetype that I tend to, you know, embody in a sense when I come and do the show. Um, so the explorer, like I mentioned earlier, is another type of archetype that is connected to independence and fulfillment. But, you know, the freedom, the whole desire is the freedom to find out who you are through the exploring of the world. And the innocent, the whole idea and the core desire of the innocent archetype is to experience paradise. <laughs> so archetypes are, you know, articulate our charisma and can facilitate what Jung called individuation. Um, so Jung had this idea that archetypes were as innate as organs in a sense. So Jung treated the, the archetypes as psychological organs in a sense, in a way, analogous to physical ones in that both are morphological constructs that arose through evolution. 
So I guess some people, at least if they're trying to find some type of empirical way to bring this into, into effect, is to think of this as a connection to evolutionary psychology. And I'll make that distinction later on. But the five main, you know, archetypes, quote unquote, that, you know, are, are personality traits, right, or aspects of the self, the unconscious aspects of the self are, uh, you know, the shadow, the anima, the animus, and the persona, and the self, like I mentioned. So the conscious and unconscious aspects of the self include the persona, the ego, the shadow, and the animus and the anima. So Jung's individuation, you know, the whole, the whole point is this is a pathway to a whole self. You know, I think he had the quote that said, I'd rather be whole than be good. And the whole self is a mature, developed psyche. It, the individual can only become one's own self and reach one's unique potential when one stops looking to the world for answers, which breeds conformity and, you know, um, obedience in a lot of ways uh, to values that they might not necessarily be connected to. So, uh, so, you know, they choose to become aware and integrate all parts of their selves. So this includes part of yourself, you know, the persona, the ego, the shadow, the animus and anima, which are the feminine and masculine part of your personality in a sense, um, the unconscious as well. And again, uh, this is stuff that Jung developed over time and I do find some interest in a lot of this stuff. But in particular, the, men the things I mentioned out of the five, um, the persona and the shadow are pretty much the most uh, important thing that I take out of this stuff and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that. Uh, so the ego, in a sense, gives us uh, an identity that distinguishes itself from others. It's the center of consciousness, you know, making daily decisions. So it is limited to the part of us, you know, the I, you know, and it's not uh, the totality of the psyche, as Jung would say. Um, the self signifies the coherent, whole, unified consciousness and unconsciousness of a person. This is the totality of the psyche. Uh, versus the ego itself. So realize as the product of the individuation process, which in Jungian view is the process of integrating one's personality, all aspects of it, mind you. Um, so symbolized by a circle, uh, especially when divided in four quadrants, you know, so think about a circle and then like four other circles on the sides. So one to the left, one to the right, one to the top, one to the bottom. So the persona. So the persona is the social face uh, a person, an individual presents to the world, a kind of mask designed, you know, on the one hand to make a definite impression upon others and on the other to conceal the true nature of the individual. So the persona, like I said, is a face or a mask we represent to the outside world. It's not our full self, but if we identify with it, we think we can be all that we are. You know, I'm, you know, so for instance, I am a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm this, I do this rather than I practice medicine or I practice law. Um, you could see how the persona kind of is there and how it would, you know, how you could actually change that. So a developed persona allows us to get along in the world, but awareness of our deeper selves open us up to other, other potentials, you know, into our full potential. So... As Jung mentioned, uh, as I mentioned about Jung, he had this idea about the anima and the animus, which he describes the element of a theory of collective unconsciousness that I mentioned, uh, which is a domain of the unconscious that transcends the personal psyche, which obviously there's no evidence towards this. But again, it's a very interesting uh, concept. Uh, 
So uh, the unconscious of the uh, so in the unconscious of the male, it finds an expression of the feminine inner personality, the anima, and the equivalent in the unconscious of the female is the expressed as a masculine inner personality, the animus. So for the anima, it is the feminine mother psychological tendencies in the psyche of a man, feelings, uh, you know, emotional feelings towards people, uh, moods um, that encourage love and uh, receptiveness and intuition and um, closeness and all these other things. So that would be how Jung would describe the anima in a way. So if he does, if a, if a person, you know, Jung mentioned that if a person closes off the anima, he becomes hostile or disrespectful towards women by projecting his resentment onto other women. So he becomes cold, harsh, domineering, overly rational and insensitive. A non-healthy anima creates an effeminate touchy male who is, uh, becomes prey to women in a sense. So when Jung mentioned, when Jung says that, he means somebody who, uh, could be walked all over. That's what he was talking about. And again, I'm not saying I, I fully agree with any of this stuff. I just do think it's interesting. And it is, uh, if we're going to talk about Young, it's important to mention all of his points, uh, not just the shadow and the persona. Um, it can, so the anima, the anima for a man can be a valuable messenger between the unconscious and conscious, opening the door to major insight, specifically about how other people, uh, particularly women, feel and, and try to understand where they're coming from, even though uh, most guys try not to do that <laughs> uh, through experience. Um, so the animus for women is the masculine father, psychological tendencies in the psyche. So Jung uh, described this as courage, power, all this other stuff. Um, a non-healthy animus is you know, judgmental or how things can be aggressive, domineering, unreasonable. That's how an unhealthy animus excuse me, unhealthy animus like represents itself. So apparently, you know, Jung mentioned that the positive side allows women to obtain um, wisdom and an understanding and the tendency to not obey authority and to be more um, independent. So um, at least that's what I understood. So, the major point I kind of wanted to talk about today and kind of, you know, spend the majority of the show going over is because that was kind of a really quick young 101 and it's really rough and I am not a expert on young at all. But I do think that the concepts that I mentioned earlier are interesting and I think it's important. Like if you're into psychology and you want to study it more, I think it's important to understand the roots of psychology and where people started from and how people are influenced. I mean, um, so I think starting at the psychoanalysts, specifically Freud and Jung, and I will do a show on Freud eventually. I just want to start off with Jung because I find the concept of the shadow so uh, interesting. So for Jung, the shadow or the shadow aspect is a part of unconscious mind consisting of repressed, you know, uh, emotions, uh, weakness, shortcomings, and instincts. So everyone carries a shadow. And the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious, you know, conscious life, the denser the shadow becomes. So it may not be in part one's link to a more primitive animal instinct, which are suppressed during early childhood by the conscious mind. Uh, that's how some would see it. So like I said, the shadow is the disowned inferior parts of that we hide – the stuff that we hide about ourselves, the stuff that we repress or suppress. 
Um, we suppress the dark impulses, our desires, our fantasies, our cowardliness, our greed, our you know all types of you know behaviors and uh, things that we try to you know hide from ourselves uh, and the world you know itself. So because out because it's out in the open, we'd feel shame and outcast. That's why we suppress these things. So we need to suppress these impulses to some extent while allowing it to be guided and loved and expressed in a healthy way and creative way. An artistic talent may hide out in the shadow. So – and this is the connection with art, specifically movies, you know, literature, um, uh, video games, comics. I mean literally all of these things were heavily influenced by the archetypal um, framework and also – Particularly the idea of the shadow archetype, you know, the other within us. So one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So that was a quote by Young talking about the importance of, you know, the actual of the of the shadow itself. And like I mentioned, uh, a quick thing, you know, archetypes, as Young said, archetypes are recurring images, descriptive, detailed patterns, landscapes or plot or character patterns that appear frequently in literature, folklore, religion and myth. They're universal patterns and shapes that ignore cultural, geographical, and temporal boundaries. So unlike a symbol that represents something other than itself within a particular text or situation, an archetype is not a text or context dependent. An archetype will always encapsulate the same core meaning each time it appears, no matter where it appears. So like I mentioned, um, an interesting thing about the shadow, and this is just you know some more quotes from certain people. Um, within each uh, woman and man, the dim cavern of the unconscious holds our forbidden feelings, secret wishes, and creative urges. Over time, these dark forces take on a life of their own, forming an intuitively recognizable figure, the shadow. A recurring theme in literature and legend, the shadow is like an invisible twin, a stranger that is us, yet not us. When it acts out in the public domain, we witness our leaders, like hero villains, fall from grace in a scandal. Closer to home, we may feel overcome with rage, obsession, shame or succumb to the self-destructive lies, addiction, and depression. Um, these appearances of the shadow introduce us to other, to the other, a powerful force that defines our efforts to tame and control it. So, you know, everyone's shadow, everyone has a shadow. There is, there is not something that one or two people have. We all have one. And confrontation with the shadow is essential for, you know, self-awareness. We cannot learn about ourselves if we do not learn about the shadow. So, you know, therefore, we're going to attract, you know, attract it through the mirrors of other people in a lot of ways. And, you know, um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting to take a look at, you know, the shadow itself and, and think about it in literature. Often the shadow is embodied, with, you know, within the foil of a character, within the heart of a character. Not every hero-villain pairing is true shadow relationship, but when the hero's darker side exists with another – you know, uh, it's it's pretty uh, – with another character, th there must also be a strong surface connection evident between protagonist and antagonist. Um, you know, so for instance, uh, think about Harry Potter and uh, Voldemort, right? Oh, I said his name. <laughs> but think about how, you know, there there is a connection between the protagonist and antagonist that is, you know, different than everybody else's connection. So they're similar but they're disparate, Right. Uh, the similarities pull them together as the differences tear them apart in a way. So think of it as that, right? So 
when you know when we seek evidence of the shadow, you know, in literature, you know, we talk about you know the shadow in literature and all this other stuff. We uh, also pay close attention to the characters with a significant disconnection between their interfaces and their outer facade. So when a literal or figurative masks are in place in terms of when you're watching a movie or read about a book or like that, chances are there is a shadow fully operating behind the fragile covering. You know, it's it's probable that there is a true visage hidden between the false front, between, you know, the mask that this person is, you know, exuding. And I'll get to why I think this is important. But first, let's talk about some modern representations of the shadow in, in history. So, you know, think about the comic, The Shadow, right? This archetype and bold and recurring character. Um, you know, there's a menacing laugh, hypnotic powers. And, you know, he had a catchphrase that uh, I'm trying to remember the famous, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The Shadow knows. The Shadow character, you know, has been throughout pulp uh, novels and comic books. And... um you know, screens of television and radio since the 1930s. So I don't know if anybody's seen that, but that's a pretty interesting uh, representation of the shadow. So, for instance, in comic books, there's so many different cases where the archetypal representations of the heroes and villains are consistently paired in a shadowy configuration of opposition. So, for instance, uh, think about Wolverine. He's one of the most popular X-Men. Is definitely shadowed by his arch nemesis, Sabretooth. Both characters are kind of like, you know, bestial in, a for, in, in appearance and their attitude. But, you know, their chief difference is deeply felt code of honor and humanity present within the otherwise, you know, pretty nasty character of Wolverine. So this respect for humanity is completely lacking within the chaotic, you know, nastiness of Sabretooth in the comics. And uh, that's something that's really important to understand. Like there is a connection, but there's – it brings – that connection brings them together and even – they even made them like bring them together through being, you know, stepbrothers and stuff or – yeah, stepbrothers in the comics and in the movies. That they're even closer, but they're even farther apart because of their disdain – because of Sabre's disdain for human life and human respect and Wolverine's respect for human life. Another interesting thing is, uh, you know, they have that new Spider-Man uh, movie that came out. So let's think about Spider-Man. The Spider-Man mythology, there's also a huge sense of the self and shadow, light and dark. So when Spider-Man gets the black suit, right, his dark side is pretty much unleashed. You think about the movie and in other, in other areas and other ways. Um, but once he, you know, discards the symbiote, you know, it creates another symbiotic relationship with the new host. And that's when, you know, the character of Venom is, you know, born. So Venom is aligned with Spider-Man in a sense superficially, sharing a similar power but like Spider-Man, Venom also possesses a strong sense of moral obligation. But Venom's sense of justice is heavily warped by his need for revenge, his largest goal you know, to bring about the downfall and death of Spider-Man, as you saw in Spider-Man 3. So even Spider-Man 3's like uh, – the main um, – uh, I remember this as a kid. The main uh, – or a younger person. I wasn't a kid at the time. But um, the main uh, – <coughs> poster was spider-man like swinging wearing the black suit and he's looking in the mirror and sees his normal suit and it's kind of a really interesting take on because it's that's the representation of the shadow right there and it's a representation that the shadow has controlled uh, you know spider-man or peter parker's life 
as you can see there. So again, another very famous in, in interpretation of the shadow is um, the Batman series. So think about the Dark Knight, you know, the codependent relationship between hero and villain. Uh, yeah, good and evil, light and dark is pushed to the center of, of the movie. Now, the Joker rep- you know, repeatedly states that the existence of Batman spurred the creation of himself, that each operates against each other because of one another, right? So every coin needs two sides, All, you know, speaking about uh, coins, uh, Two-Face. But although the Joker states it, you know, in a, in a joking way, in a funny way during the interrogation scene, but he says, you complete me. And, you know, when you think about that, that, that connection from a Jungian perspective, because if you take the Joker and Batman separately, both are calculating, uh, very effective at what they do, but, you know, one respects human life and respects the, um, people in general, and the other one is just, you know, death worshiping a piece of trash, as Jason Todd said. But, uh, you could see the connection there. And also think about the Star Wars series. You know, I'm a big uh, Star Wars fan, not too much of the newer movies, but when I was younger, I was a big fan and saw those as a kid and fell in love with them. So again, this isn't a great, that great of a movie, but think about episode one. Episode one, I remember seeing it and the uh, poster was, you know, young Anakin Skywalker walking in, in his shadow. Literally, his shadow is Darth Vader's shadow. So you could see that, you know, in the Star Wars universe, it's full of uh, archetypes. And George Lucas was doing this on purpose, right? Um, the shadow is no exception to the archetypal usage. You know, the promotional image, like I said, with Anakin, Anakin Skywalker walking and the shadow of Vader in the back. And the same thing with episode three, uh, you know, Anakin's face turning into the face of uh, the mask of Darth Vader in the promotional imaging. Um, and also think about the Matrix trilogy. There's a strong sense of connection between the hero, you know, Neo and Agent Smith. They they both can eventually, you know, access and manipulate, you know, the Matrix itself. So each person is able to see beyond the programming down to the essential truth in the, of the of its, you know, the virtual reality. But Agent Smith refuses to yield his sense of purpose, vying to destroy Neo as Neo struggles to free others from their grip, you know, from the false grip of, you know, uh, the the fake reality, the matrix. But again, like I mentioned, Harry Potter, you know, the hero and villain are conjoined through similarities and driven to opposition through similar, so significant differences. So both wizards demonstrate extremely powerful abilities and uh, the aptitudes for magic. Um, the feathers within their, with feathers within their wands even possess parallel cores. Um, but the chief difference defines them. Lord Voldemort shrouds himself in hatred while Harry Potter has literally been marked by love, Right. So the lightning strike gashed across his forehead is a symbol of his mother's affection and sacrifice when defining when defending you know Harry as an infant against Voldemort's attack, which is centered through hatred. You can also Lord of the Rings. You know, think about Frodo and uh, you know Smeagol, Gollum. Think about the connections they have there. So um, it's complex system of self and shadow is pretty you know it's pretty complex. You know, there's many services similarities between, you know, uh, Frodo and, you know, Gollum. You know, Frodo Baggins is a hobbit, the type of, you know, person Gollum used to be, type of creature Gollum used to be. Both have an intimate knowledge of the pain and power associated with, you know, being a ring bearer. You know, but Frodo has not yet completely overcome by his shadow while Gollum has almost been defined by the darkness within um, even within the shadow representation, there's further split between good and evil. Gollum has two distinct personalities. 
uh, bearing, you know, different names. One is Smeagol and, uh, you know, still remembers Shred of His Humanity, while Gollum, you know, no longer, you know, yearns to be a human anymore. So you could see throughout movies, throughout literature, throughout stories, and this goes back even centuries before any of this stuff was written. Go back into ancient Greek tales and ancient Greek mythology and uh, Babylonian mythology and Indian mythology. A lot of this stuff um, has an interesting connection to you know specifically how countries were founded and how areas are founded. The mythology about how areas were founded and countries are founded. There's even a mythology to all that stuff. And again, take religions and the the pantheon of archetypal explanations within them. Um, it's important to understand that this is uh, this is really this is really something that can't be ignored and, and should be taken seriously because to understand all these films and all this stuff is pretty cool. But specifically, the idea of how a shadow and the self are at war with each other throughout these movies and throughout these books and comic books and whatever. But I think there's a deeper thing here, you know. And that's kind of what I wanted to finish on. You know, so this is the path to wholeness in a sense. That's what it is. You know, the persona, you know, the idea of the persona is to be aware of your persona, the whole, you know, and to strive to be authentic and genuine so you can integrate your persona with your real self. You know, the idea of the ego, like I mentioned, is to allow it to learn from the unconsciousness, you know, to allow it to learn from your personal unconsciousness and what, you know, you might be repressing in a way. The shadow, you know, something to learn about the shadow is to acknowledge and accept and love, you know, the and embrace the negative parts of you and learn to use those negative parts in such a way and fashion to create interesting and beautiful things. Like the artwork I mentioned, like all the books like J.K. Rowling used, you know, the, the idea of the shadow to build a, an amazing story, an idea of the self and the persona to kind of bring it all together. And that's what makes her – makes Harry Potter – You know, I was talking to my friend. He just reread them. It was what makes it so interesting and so great. Um, the animus and anima, you know, empower them so you can benefit from both sides of your personality and sides of your nature, the masculine and feminine side of your, of your personality and your nature. You know, archetypes, like I said, identify your archetype and eliminate its power over you. Like I mentioned, the sage archetype has uh, – is kind of what I've been you know, presenting and uh, you know, trying to encompass you know, through my actions when I'm you know, doing this show and thinking about this show. So, yeah, but to realize that, you know, it doesn't have power over me. So it's important to understand all this stuff. But ultimately, I want to end on this and uh, leave you with this. So, like I said, we, we love to watch these, you know, these movies and stories about uh, uh, crazy people. Like think about the Hannibal Lecter series. I'm a huge fan of the TV show. And, you know, people watch stuff about horrible psychopathic thugs. And, you know, we hopefully, we're, you know, we learn from, you know, what to, how, how to defeat these type of people. But, you know, there's additional advantages to know someone who – to know these things and understand these things. Because if you can understand your shadow and understand your connection to it, you can understand, you know, why, why it's bad to treat people, you know, negatively. So think about this. If you had a, um, a, a tough relationship with your father or mother, right, and they exuded their anger in a way and their aggression in a way that was necessarily 
you know, not good and they weren't able to control it. But other than that, they were fine, right? Um, and let's say you make a promise to yourself that I am never going to be aggressive or angry or any of this stuff ever. So what, what you do there automatically is remove the idea that being aggressive in any, in any situation is immoral and wrong. When in many cases in your life, if people are mistreating your loved ones or people are mistreating you and not showing you know, respect to you, that aggression is necessary to stop people from doing things, uh, bad things to you and bad things to others. So it's important to understand, you know, and, and uh, Jung had that expression, um, dissolve and then integrate. So it's important to dissolve a lot of these things within us, you know, to dissolve the shadow and dissolve the negative aspects of our personality and then integrate them within us. So think about a martial artist. Martial, martial artists learn how to kick butt. They learn how to kick ass. I mean that's what they do. But they rarely fight. People that I know who are martial artists rarely fight. When they get tested and people get in their face and they know they can fight, they, they try to test them. They don't fight. They just stand there and they're very calm. Why? Because they know what they are capable of. They know what they can do, but they understand that, you know what, I should be the bigger person here and not allow the negative aspects of my personality to rule me and to control me. So I think something we can learn from, you know, young and learn from other people and learn from ourselves and like all these movies and, you know, um, books and comic books is to learn that, you know, the shadow lives within us, but it's important to not let the shadow control us. Um, and the thing is to face your own shadow and to contend with your shadow is a very you know dangerous and scary thing. And Jung mentioned that, you know, your shadow reaches down to hell. And what, what he meant by that is, is if you think, you know, just because, you know, you're good and all this stuff and you could never be, you know, bad in any of these things, the most important thing to realize is there's people throughout the world who one day things were normal, things were great, then the society went into complete chaos and then people joined in on the chaos and people did horrible things. Look what happened. You know, I mean, obviously the Iraq, the Iraq war and the Iraq invasion was you know, a complete shit show and it didn't work out. But look at how the society of Iraq turned after that. There was a ton of people coming in just to create problems. You know, you can think about the Dark Knight, you know, and uh, think about um, the Batman trilogy. You know, uh, Alfred said some people just like to watch the world burn. And that's what the shadow represents for a lot of people. That it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuation of their resentment. It's a continuation of their nihilism and ultimately their hatred for themselves and their aspects of themselves. So I think it's essential for us to – to understand that, you know, this is a part of us, the, the, the way that you could look at yourself and look at a situation and say, well, I could be manipulative right now. I could really lie to somebody and get something I want. Why? Why is that, why is that, why is that enticing to anybody? Why, why would anybody think that's good? But the thing is like when people have that, that thought, right, that, that's your shadow coming up. And that's a sign that you haven't really – confronted your shadow and dealt with your shadow and, you know, dissolved it and then integrated it within yourself. So I think, you know, it's, it's essential for us to understand that. And if we can understand that, um, then you can understand why, through you know. So I think Jung mentioned that it was necessary for, pe you know, people to integrate their shadow. And he said this was a terrible thing because, you know, the human shadow – it represents things about us that we don't like. 
And a lot of the times it can, you know, traumatize us in a way, you know. So it's important to understand that um, you do this with caution, obviously. And, you know, there's a term out there called shadow play. And you, the whole idea is to accept the negative aspects of your personality, learn to better those negative aspects of your personality one by one, and then work to make the active changes in your life so that those negative aspects of your personality can never be come out in the forefront. And, you know, like like a martial artist, it's important to know that I, you know, I can, you know, take care of myself. I can take care of others. I can protect others. But that's not who I am initially, you know, fully. That is just an aspect of myself. So think of your shadow as an aspect of yourself. And to fully integrate it, it would be to diffuse it, right, to dissolve it. And you dissolve its power over you. So... To end today's show, I just want to mention that obviously all the show notes will be up and I'll, rep- I'll you know, put up uh, books that I recommend um, and people that I recommend who uh, were influenced by Young. But I do think it's something that we should take into consideration, particularly the ideas about the persona and the shadow and its connection to how we live. So I want to thank you and I hope you have a great day.